to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week, we'll be talking about Louis Capel, also known as Capellus. So Louis Capel had a far less storied life than Grotius. Though his life has fewer twists and turns, his studies on the Old Testament text have proven far more influential. For this reason, the biographical segment will be considerably shorter than Grotius, and the discussion of his works and influence will be longer. So let's start with the biography. Louis Capel was born at saint Elier in France in 1585. His parents fled persecution in France because they were Protestants. And if you remember what I was saying before, France was primarily Catholic for a very large percentage of its history. So they uh, fled France. His father died in 1586. Remember, that would put Louis Capel at one year old. And his mother went back to France and placed the children under a Catholic tutor. Louis's older brother, James, had remained in France and had become a minister and a professor in 1599. He then brought Louis to Sedan, where he was teaching, so that Louis could study at the academy there from 1607 to 1608. Louis then spent a year as the housemaster of the children of the Duke of Bouillon, and after that, in 1610, he spent two years in Oxford and one year in Leiden studying Arabic. In 1613, the congregation of Bordeaux gave him the opportunity to study at the leading Protestant educational institute of the time, the Academy in Saumur. He accepted a position as professor of Hebrew at the Academy in Saumur until his death in 1658. Also be aware that that academy was also known at the time as being one of the most liberal in the region. But either way, he spent his whole academic career teaching at that academy. So, this is a little soon for the break point in the episode, and I do want to give some prologue to the discussion of his works. In order to understand Capel's work, you do have to know a little about Hebrew. So if you want to do a quick Google search of Hebrew script, that could help, but hopefully I can explain it well enough that you can get a rough picture in your head. So the Hebrew writing that I'm talking about is square script. There is a Paleo-Hebrew script found in ancient inscriptions, and there is also a modern Hebrew cursive used in Israel-Palestine. But I'm talking about the most common script that you've probably seen. 
all the letters look really blocky. That's why they call it square script. Um, and whether you know the letters or not, you can imagine that little backwards C and the little backwards lowercase r, and they, they all are pretty squared off, right? When you're thinking about this, notice that almost all of the letters, except a couple special forms, stay within the top and bottom lines of writing. Think, think of it on like what would be a lined sheet of paper. So thinking about English, lowercase y and lowercase g have tails that go below the bottom line. Unless your handwriting is absolute garbage like mine is, nothing really goes above the top line, or at least it isn't supposed to. So English often breaks that bottom line of writing. It has things that hang down, tails, if you will. Hebrew does this as well, but really far more rarely than English does. If you were to draw little squares across your page, the letters would pretty well fit into those squares. Um, and English letters would not because they are far more varied in the size and shape of them. Anyhow, all those blocky, squarish letters in Hebrew are the consonants. Yes, all of them are consonants, and there are no vowels. However, Biblical Hebrew has little dots and lines above and below the letters. Mostly below, but some are above. As a side note, modern Hebrew typically does not contain any vowels. So if you want to see examples of what I am about to explain, you will want to look up biblical Hebrew text, not modern Hebrew text. So if you look at the blocky letters in biblical Hebrew, you might see a tiny little T-shaped letter below one of the letters or three little dots in the shape of like an upside down triangle. And these are the vowels. This is why I emphasized the blockiness of the letters. Since the letters don't usually go below the line, you can put little dots and dashes below the letters to mark the vowels. So, for example, you can write a letter that looks like a lowercase r, just that curved line, backwards, and it's called a rache. makes an r sound. You can put a small little dash under it, called a patak, and then if you go to the left side of it, you write a letter that looks like a backwards C, but with a straight line at the bottom, not curved, and that is called a bait. That spells the word rav, which means much or many. Well, that backwards R and that backwards C are the letters, the consonant sounds, the er and v of it. The little dash under that backwards R that is the vowel that makes the A sound. It's not a full consonant, it's just a little dash underneath the letter. So I want to throw out some terminology here. I'll be using the term vowel points, but they are also sometimes called nikud. That is spelled either N-I-Q-Q-U-D or N-I-K-K-U-D. Either way, nikud is just the Hebrew term for vowel points, just the Hebrew word. 
And when you think about vowels, think of them as the tiny dots and dashes around the letters, and you'll understand why we call them vowel points rather than vowel letters. They're not actually letters. They're little dots or helpers. So the first part, vowel points are not written like normal letters in Hebrew, but are small markings surrounding the consonant letters. Second note, there are also cantillation marks in the Hebrew Old Testament. This again is Hebrew Old Testament, not modern Hebrew. You're about to see why. This is something unique to the Hebrew Bible because it tells the reader how to sing the text. Cantillation means singing. Think chant and cantillation. Cantillation. Those terms are related. Chant and cant in there are from the same root, which is singing or chanting. So, in addition to little dots and dashes below the consonants of the Hebrew text, there are also different little dots and dashes and squiggles above the Hebrew text. These mark things like long pauses at the end of a phrase, raising or lowering the tone of your voice, a shorter pause that's halfway through a sentence, and a whole list of other items that you can express with your speaking and singing voice. One thing I want to note, and it's not super valuable to our study, the synagogue usage and names of all these markings are not agreed upon at this point. Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews use them differently, even though the symbols are the same. Also, I want to give terminology on this as well. I will try to be consistent calling them cantillation marks. However, they are often called accents and diacritics in English. So cantillation stresses their synagogue musical quality, while accents show the syntactic quality. In other words, they mark phrasing and pauses and other types of movement and breaks in the reading of the text, which shows the syntax, the phrasing of the text. Diacritic is just a fancy term for accent mark. Uh, it is a Greek term meaning distinguishing. So diacritic and accent are really two ways of saying almost the same thing. They just show that there's something added above the letters to aid in the reading or singing while cantillation specifically highlights the synagogue usage and the musical aspect. So a recap of my two major points I wanted to make here. The Hebrew alphabet is only consonants. Under these consonant letters are small marks for vowels, and above these consonants are small marks for phrasing and singing. This is oversimplified to the point of telling lies because not all vowels are below and not all accent marks are above the letters. But this is mostly the system. And the important thing is not that you can look at a Hebrew text and identify every cantillation mark and every vowel sign. You just need to know basically how the language written functions to understand Capellus. He is looking at the actual graphic rendering here. So in the next section of the podcast, 
we will look at how Capellus questioned the origin of the vowels and cantillation marks and how it was received. But first, let's take a break. Welcome back. Now we can turn to Capel's Old Testament contribution. So the biggest thing that he did was question the origin of the vowel points in cantillation marks. Now just to flash forward, it is widely accepted today that the vowels in cantillation marks are not original to the text. We have discovered many ancient texts, including the famous Qumran scrolls, that do not contain these vowel points. So most scholars view them as later additions. That is to say, the earliest Hebrew writings were only consonants. This was not the case in Capel's day. Many of the archeological discoveries came later. So the argument about the text took a different line of discourse at that time. When you don't have archeology span to point to, you have to find other ways of getting at the past. So another prologue, I want to start with some of the people that came before Capellus. He was not the first to question the origin of the vowels, though he may have been one of the most influential. There were a few others who really kicked off the conversation. So one of the first ones was Elias Levita, and he was a Jewish philologist and published a commentary, actually a commentary on the rabbinic commentary of the Bible, in 1538. To put this in perspective, Capellus was born in 1585, so the book was published almost 50 years before his birth. Keeping that in mind. In Levita's commentary, he argued that the vowels and accents were created by the rabbinic commentators in the city of Tiberias in AD 500. The traditional Jewish claim was that the vowel signs and accents were established by Ezra and the great synagogue, who is the same Ezra from the Old Testament book which bears his name. So depending on when you date Ezra's life, this is about 900 years later than that traditional viewpoint of Ezra. In other words, AD 500 to Ezra's life is about a 900-year gap. Christian Hebrew scholars accepted this, and some notable translators accepted this position without concern as well. But a change was coming. 
Though some had passively accepted Levita's claim, Protestant theologians began to wrestle with the dogmatic issue of this. Can you guess why? What is the theological difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism that would make Protestants nervous about the dates for the Hebrew vowels? There are two, and I will start with the first one. If you said Sola Scriptura, that is the largest one that was at issue. Sola Scriptura is Latin for Scripture alone. This is the doctrine that only the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are authoritative for Christians. To deepen this divide, and the second reason why it didn't bother Roman Catholic scholars, is that the Catholic Church relied upon the Latin Vulgate, not the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. So it would be easy for the Catholic scholar to say that the Hebrew is corrupt because the Latin translation is the truly inspired word of God. If you know what the Latin Vulgate is, then you know that it was translated from the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts by the early church fathers. So, yes, if you take the Latin as the ultimate authority, then the problems with Hebrew vowel points are not immediately concerning. However, you then have to ask what the Latin text is based upon and whether the Hebrew issues affected that translation. Anyhow, the Protestant Reformation sought to go back to the original Hebrew and Greek languages. They also hammered the point that the church and church tradition are not authoritative. Only scripture is authoritative. But how can scripture be the only authority if it has changed through time? Do the vowel points coming later ruin the integrity of the text? Is it really timeless and God-given, or has it changed over the centuries while it was transmitted? Do these changes make you question the authority of it or the reliability of it? Enter Johannes Buxdorf. Buxdorf was a Hebraist, that is, one who studies the Hebrew language. He was at the University of Basel starting in about 1590. Again, that is five years after Capel's birth and just over 50 years after Levita's major commentary. One of his major works was called Tiberius and was written in 1620. Buxdorf in this work admits that many of his Christian colleagues accepted Levita's position without question. He does not. His main argument against Levita was that many passages could be changed arbitrarily because there are no vowels. Let me give you an English example. If you have the consonants T, H, and S, but no vowels, you could potentially have the words those, these, thus, and this. There are multiple possibilities. Now think about an entire sentence where the words are spelled with only consonants. You get tons of possibilities. I want to give you a more concrete example from the Old Testament. The beginning of Psalm 110. 
So it is actually 110 verse 3. If you want to be really technical, verse 3a, just the first couple words. Most English translations will have something like the phrase, your people will volunteer freely. People will volunteer freely. The Hebrew words are ameka nedabot. Ameka nedabot. However, the Old Greek and some of the early church fathers translate with you is the rule, which would probably come from Ameka Nadibut, the change between volunteer freely and is rule is Nadabot versus Nadibot. You hear the difference? Nadabot, Nadibut. It is an A to an I and an O to a U sound. The root of the word is different even though it has the same consonants. It is how you understand the pronunciation of N, D, and B. If you're in Hebrew, it would be Nun, Dalit, Beit, the three consonants. Is it Nedibut or Nedabot? So what do you do when the early sources seem to think there are different vowels from the version you have? If you're a Buxdorf, you panic. Not really. That's a joke. You do what scholars do, and you add up the evidence and start making arguments. So let's follow Buxdorf's line of argument here. Number one, he used the Talmud to show that the rabbis who wrote the Talmud read the Hebrew Bible the same way and were familiar with the accents. The dating of the Talmud is kind of important here. The earlier part of the Talmud, being the Mishnah, is thought to have been codified around AD 200 or so. So if the rabbis in the Talmud knew about the vowel points, they must have been around at least 300 years or so before Levitic claimed. Remember that was around AD 500-ish? So one, the rabbis who wrote the Talmud read the Hebrew Bible the same way and seem to be familiar with the accent marks. Number two, he argued that Masoretic notations showed that the Masoretes, being the scribes, would not have altered the text, but simply offered their judgments in the margin. Remember the Ketiv Kare that I talked about a few episodes ago? This is where the scribes, also known as Masoretes, would write a note in the margin of the text suggesting a better reading. So if you have the ketiv, what is written, in the body of the manuscript, and the kare, what should be read, in the margin. These really do exist, and it is the Masoretic way of saying that the text might be corrupt, or have a misspelling, or a duplicated word, or some other issue but they do not want to change the word of God. So they just notate it in the margin. We think that a better reading is this one. We don't want to change the words in the body of the text. We'll make a little note on the side. Well, the line of arguing for Buxdorf is, if the scribes were this particular about changing the text, 
then it would make sense that after the time of Ezra, when supposedly the vowel points were inserted, these scribes would just continue the tradition. Now they only note in the margins not add vowels or consonants or anything else to the text. The inconsistencies of the vowels and the accents, and to be fair, there are a few inconsistencies in the Old Testament, the inconsistencies just further proves that they were not being revised, just noted by the scribes. So it is important to note that Buxdorf was very close with the Jewish community of his day, and he had extensive knowledge of the scribal traditions, also known as Masoretic schools. He also knew about all of the pushback that Elias Levita had received when he had claimed that accents and vowels came way later, so nothing in the Talmud addressed vowel points and accents. Though much of the Christian tradition didn't care about the reality of the Hebrew initially, remember they relied on the Latin, since the Reformation, the reassessment of the importance was growing, and Buxdorf was a leader in this argument. And truthfully, the Jewish community, who always relied on the Hebrew text, was not a very big fan of Levita's work either. It is also important to know that Buxdorf's son took up the cause after him, though he essentially makes many of the same arguments most of his work comes after Capellus, so I will not be touching too much on it. But this all seems like a pretty simple argument, right? Either the vowel points are mentioned in the Talmud or not. Also, the Masoretes either felt free to add vowels and accents or they were only making marginal notations. But it is also a really important argument. If the vowel points are not original, how do we know what we are reading is the word of God? Or how do we know that it's not a misunderstanding of it? In fact, it has been shown that Buxdorf was a little more unsure of his viewpoints than some of his publications indicate, in part for this reason. In his personal letters, he admitted that the evidence was uncertain and didn't necessarily point in his favor. However, with the authority and reliability of scripture on the line, even ambiguous evidence must be marshaled to support the Bible, right? Well, now I think it's the right time to introduce Louis Capel. But first, let's take a break. So, Louis Capel. 
If you remember from the first part of this episode, Capel was a professor of Hebrew at a Protestant university. If you also remember from our recent discussion, Catholic scholars were using the late development of Hebrew vowels to undermine the authority of the Old Testament, and Protestant scholars were digging in their heels to show that the vowels were in fact ancient and the Hebrew text was reliable. Louis Capel, a Protestant scholar at a Protestant school. For this reason, Buxdorf advised him not to publish his opinion on Hebrew vowels in the 1620s. Buxdorf was well into his academic career and had already published his thoughts on the matter by this point, and his advice was really a way for Capel to maintain his standing at his university. If you think that there are no politics in academia, think again. There are certain things that you should not say if you want to stay employed, even if you back it up with tons of research and proof. If it goes against the convictions of the school or is just socially unpopular, most will avoid publishing it. Secular and private universities have their biases, and everyone has an idea of what those are. And if they want to continue teaching at that school, they avoid them. Anyhow, Arcanum Punctationis Revelatum, about the ancient punctuation marks of the Hebrew Bible. This was the title of a work published in 1624 anonymously. It is unclear whether Capel intentionally did this or someone got a hold of the manuscript and published it without his consent. The work argued essentially the same point that Levita had argued previously, but at greater length and with far more evidence. The other important part is that he addressed Buxdorf's fears. Capel has claimed that even without Jewish traditions and teachers, and without the vowel points and accents, Christians would still be able to get the same sense of the Hebrew text that we have with the vowel points. This pushed the conversation out of the confessional framework. Even if the vowel points are late, why does that mean that the text must be incomprehensible or flawed? Why can't it still be reliable and understandable even without the help of the vowels? This is not where he ends, though. Capellus wrote another book, Critica Sacra, in 1650. In this book, Capellus deals with textual variants in different ancient traditions. Think the Syriac translation, the Greek translation, the Latin translation. Not modern language, but the Roman Empire and earlier translations. He sets forth a methodology to find the correct meaning of a text. His claim is that, quote, truer, clearer, apter, neater, and more fitting meaning, which coheres better with what precedes and what follows it, is closer and more aligned with the intentions and object of the writer and more conforming and concordant to the pattern of the whole of Scripture in whatever book the reading occurs. End quote. In other words, 
the correct reading of a text fits the context better and scripture as a whole and the intention of the author. A side note here, if you know anything about modern textual criticism, you will know this is almost the exact opposite of the method that modern text critics use. But Capellus was very early in setting down strict methodology for text criticism, so let's give him a little bit of grace. Anyhow, Capellus' method was that the correct reading of a text fits the context better and scripture as a whole and the intention of the author. With this method, Capellus went through the Hebrew text and made systematic emendations, that is to say corrections, to find the purest form of the text. So he would compare the Hebrew with other ancient versions like the ancient Greek translation called the Septuagint, or the early church fathers, or the New Testament, and then select which reading was best. The challenge is that his selections were hugely motivated by his theological convictions and not historical or textual concerns. So, he would often derive the text from the New Testament, even though the New Testament authors are known to paraphrase the Old Testament and are also known to frequently cite the Greek translation rather than the Hebrew directly. He also claimed that passages where multiple variant readings were possible were a sign of God's providential wisdom that multiple meanings could come from the same text. In these cases, the reader could choose whichever option they preferred. I know that strikes against what most modern readers would agree with, but that was where he stood. So some of his methods might seem a little bit sketchy, and probably are. Uh, most scholars today would be very cautious about correcting the Hebrew text based upon the New Testament. Even comparing the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation, and the Hebrew Old Testament is extremely challenging. Also, the view that multiple readings means choose whatever one you want is not widely accepted as a good methodology. But he's doing something very important here. He was writing at the end of the discussion of the origin of vowel points. After his time, the view that the vowels were original pretty quickly dies out in most areas. And the view had been dying out, honestly, even before Capellus. He just helped to drive in that last nail. So what he was offering was not so much a radically new concept of vowel points. What he offered was the separation of theological conviction from academic criticism. So now you can question the reliability of the Masoretic text. You can correct the text using other ancient translations. You can say that the vowel points are only found after AD 500. You can say that you still believe in God and the Bible. Your academic interrogation of the text does not immediately impact your theological convictions. Capel was still a Protestant and believed the Hebrew Bible was essentially reliable. However, he did see textual issues 
but he tried not to let those conflict with his theology. Maybe fixing the text using other ancient translations affirms the faith by making a better reading than the Hebrew text alone. Maybe it is God's wisdom that allows multiple variants in a text, and so you can celebrate that a verse can be read in different ways. I am just barely touching on the relationship between biblical criticism and Christian faith. So much can be said, though I don't think that there is a final answer for how those two interact. The important part here is that the initial step of removing critical analysis from theological convictions was taken. Capella started the project of opening up the text to all kinds of questions and doubts that would have previously been off limits for a good confessing Christian. So that's where I'm going to leave us on Louis Capel. What does it mean to doubt the Hebrew text or the vowel pointings of it? And how does that relate with your theological convictions or the essential authority and reliability of the Old Testament? In the next episode, we will be discussing Pierre Daniel Hewitt and ideas about the origin of law and Jewish or Israelite religion. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistic scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.